Diana. Um, thank you very much, uh, everyone, for joining us today. I, I know that uh, you can all see me and I can't see you, but uh, hopefully uh, uh, we'll be able to overcome that. Um, so as Diana said, my name is Hannah. I'm the director of an organization called Yachad, which is a British Jewish organization, which was established um, just over 10 years ago now to build support within the Anglo-Jewish community specifically for a resolution to the conflict and an end to occupation. So for the past 10 years, my work has focused um, obviously with, uh, with my team on shifting the debate within the Anglo-Jewish community with a view to being able to mobilize British Jews to be more vocal about their support for a resolution to the conflict. So um, a significant part of our work is focused on educating the community about the conflict. Um, uh, and that includes things like sending British Jews on delegations to the East, to East Jerusalem and the West Bank, um, taking young people who are on organised programmes out in Israel with youth groups um, and kind of adding into their itineraries, uh, spending a bit of time in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem so they can get a greater understanding of what's going on. We, in pre-COVID times, we flew over lots of um, Israelis and Palestinians to speak to our community, people, in, everything from human rights activists to... Um, people that have been previously in the military and in intelligence in Israel, former diplomats, former politicians, to try and kind of present a different perspective. And we have obviously continued to do all of that um, in this kind of forum on Zoom throughout the pandemic. And then the rest of our work is focused on political education and advocacy, which is how do we, how can we use the influence we have both in the parliamentary context in the UK to, to better engage parliamentarians on this issue? How do we, um, show parliamentarians that there is broad support within the Jewish community for a resolution to the conflict and how do we mobilize our supporters to lobby for, for political change. And so our work is very much kind of partly focused on the inside, partly focused on kind of um, campaigning and advocacy on the outside. And we've been working with um, the Balfour Project and lots of other partners um, quite closely, particularly on parliamentary work for the last three or four years. And so it's nice to be invited here to speak to all of you today. Um, I was going to talk hopefully for about 15 minutes to give you a kind of little bit of an overview and then I'm really keen to open it up to questions and dialogue and discussion and obviously people will have different perspectives and opinions um, but when Diana and Vincent asked me to speak they asked if I would talk about why ending the occupation is um, in the interest of everybody in the region and so I wanted to just give you a um, I guess a kind of very brief overview of how of how I see it and how we see it as an organization. And I'm sure that some of what I say will not be new to any of you. Um, so I guess I will start by saying this. I think it's quite clear that um, there is a moral imperative to end the occupation and that actually uh, Palestinians can not only thrive, but they can barely survive under occupation. And, uh, and an occupation which is now 54 years old that has stifled uh, civil rights, human rights, um, economic, econ the economy um, ha has kind of got to a point now where when we, when we were setting up the organization 10 years ago, there was an imperative to end the occupation for all those reasons. And I would say 10 years later, that imperative is greater than it's ever been. It's quite clear that, um, that the impact that the occupation has on the Palestinian people and their ability to, to even function, let alone ha have anything that resembles a state is, is so severe that I think that anyone who, um, who, who cares about basic human rights and basic civil rights will understand that the occupation is not a sustainable um, way to kind of uh, exist for Palestinians and it's a status quo that, 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 that cannot hold. 
Um, and I would preface everything I say with saying that, that that, that moral imperative exists. And I think that I, I assume that most of us would, would kind of share that analysis. Um, beyond that, and I guess this is getting into kind of um, some of the broad issues that I think that is the reason that I was invited to speak today is how that looks from the other side. So why is there an imperative for, any, for, for Israel, particularly, who holds the power here to end the occupation? And I would say primarily that, that for a lot of Israelis, the occupation is not something that they support. So, so, so we're not talking about a society of 7 million people that support the occupation. We're talking in the main about a society of people in which actually about half a million people are settlers. And within that half a million people, there is only about 150 to 200,000 who are ideological settlers. So people who are in the West Bank and East Jerusalem for religious um, reasons and for ideological reasons, because they believe that Israel has a right to that territory. And in fact, if you drill that down even further, and I don't want to quote you numbers because I haven't got exact figures here, um, it's actually an even smaller minority of people who are extremely ideological settlers. So the people that I guess some of us imagine when someone says the word settlers, um, is you know people that are kind of running down hills, burning down olive trees, and and abusing Palestinians, and and they absolutely exist, and they act with absolutely with impunity. But they're actually quite a small minority of people, and the overwhelming majority of people that are living in the West Bank today are there for for partly ideological reasons, often economic reasons. There's there's huge ultra orthodox religious communities that are there because that's where an uh, a community that they're prepared to live in has been established and they moved to it and actually a lot of them don't even recognize um the existence of the state of israel for theological reasons so whether you're over the green line or inside the green line is actually neither here nor there um and then there is a whole body of people inside israel who either do or don't support what's going on in the west bank and primarily people that do support it support it for security reasons so they believe that israel will only be safe and secure if it maintains a military presence in the West Bank because of, you know, I don't know how well, um, how much people know about the geography, but because of the size of Israel, which is tiny, actually, it's roughly the size of Wales, that, that this uh, an existential fear and whether people kind of think it's real or perceived, I think, is actually secondary to the fact that people really feel it that Israel is not safe or secure, and the less land it has, the less safe and secure it will be. So the reason that I kind of give you that. Um, background is because I think it is quite important to understand what motivates and drives the maintenance of the occupation. Um, and for lots of Israelis, it's just not relevant to their day-to-day -day life. So, so actually, they don't walk about their day-to-day -day lives thinking about whether the occupation should be there or not. And it will take a, a kind of significant increase in violence for people to um, for people to kind of even pay attention to the fact it exists. And when people in Israel feel that they're under physical threat, what tends to happen, and I guess this is not surprising, is, is that they kind of retreat and they will do the opposite of, of kind of lobby their government to the end of the occupation. And, and a lot of people will turn around and say, well, we're fighting a war and there's nothing we can do. So, so you effectively have a society of people that in the main are not, um, are not really that engaged day to day with the conflict unless it really flares up other than those that are kind of ideologically in the West Bank of settlements. So um, what's the imperative for Israel to end the occupation? I would say first and foremost, it's because Israel can't survive if it maintains the occupation. So Israel cannot survive in any kind of way, shape or form, either from a security perspective or from a democratic perspective. So what we effectively have today 
is one state in which there are citizens and non-citizens. Um, and the, the point at which that becomes a permanent regime, Israel can no longer claim in any way, shape or form that it is trying to be a democracy or that it intends to, um, at some point in the future in the occupation, to maintain its democratic character. And I think that the point at which that line has been very clearly crossed, and I think that people will have differences of opinion and do have differences of, differences of opinion as to whether that line has been already crossed or not, then Israel cannot survive as part of the kind of democratic Western world, which I think for most Israelis is actually quite an important part of Israel's character. And certainly for Jews outside of Israel who have an affinity to Israel, it is. Um, so there is a clear imperative for Israel to end the occupation um, in order to maintain its democratic character. I would say that um, one of the very, um, I don't know what the word is, but one of the, one of the, anomalies of of the conflict is the is that this perception that it's that, that maintaining the occup occupation is necessary for security and so there is a great irony which is that if you I, I don't know how many of you might have seen a film called the gatekeepers so the gatekeepers was made i think about five or six years ago now um and it in possibly even slightly longer. Um, and it interviewed the the, the, the the living, well, they're not all alive anymore, but the six living former heads of the Shin Bet, so Israel Security Service. So the people that know the most about um, Israel's safety and security, all of whom went on the record. And I recommend that you watch this documentary if you've not seen it, it's, it's in Hebrew, but it's subtitled. Um, all of whom went on the record and said the, the, the biggest single existential threat to Israel's survival is the occupation. So it's not Iran, it's not um, Hezbollah, it's not Hamas, and it's not to say that those things are not a threat, but all six living former heads of the Shin Bet all said the biggest single threat to Israel's security is the maintenance of the occupation, because you effectively are controlling a group of people and ruling over them, a group of people who do not want to be controlled or ruled over, and they are and they are in really close proximity to you. And the idea that Israel can maintain any kind of semblance of long-term security in a situation like that is, is um, certainly to these men who were interviewed, you know, is, is actually quite nonsensical. And so there is this great irony that people go to the ballot box in Israel and vote on the grounds of security. So they'll vote, and we saw this, that they voted for 12 years for Benjamin Netanyahu on the basis that he was good for Israel's security, when the people who know the most about Israel's security were effectively saying, He's terrible for Israel's security. And so um, perceptions and reality are quite kind of um, difficult to kind of piece together because they are, because the, because the reality of security and the perception of security are, is actually quite far apart inside Israel. So, um, you know, from a security perspective, ongoing occupation, for, you know, is um, actually, I think, kind of, is it has the potential to, severely undermine Israel's ability to maintain the security of its citizens. So, you know, we, we have the moral imperative and the impact that the occupation obviously is having on Palestinian life. We have a security, there, there is a democratic imperative and there's a security imperative and a couple of other things that I wanted to mention, which is that I think that one of the things that we have seen, I think in the last few years particularly, is the kind of ongoing maintenance of occupation, the impact that has on international law. So it's very clear that there are breaches of international law in maintaining the occupation. Um, and the more that Israel maintains that occupation, the more is 
uh, international law is undermined. And I think that that poses a quite a grave threat actually to, to the world beyond Israel-Palestine, which is that, you know, there is a that there are very clear and um, important relationships that Israel has with lots of Western powers, including the UK, as we know, but America and much of Europe. And the more that a blind eye is turned to the undermining of inter an international rules-based order, the less safe the world becomes for everybody, because somehow Israel is allowed to um, ignore those aspects of the law, allowed to get away with breaching them, you know, whatever you want to call it. But but that kind of what it does over a period of time is that it undermines the credibility of international law as a kind of independent arbiter of how the world is run and how conflicts are dealt with. And I think that there is an imperative for people like us who sit outside, who care about that region, to see that conflict and, the, and particularly the occupation uh, come to an end because because I think that there are broader ramifications for how we as a global society um, interact with each other and how and, and how much credibility our international institutions end up having when it's when they are unable to apply international law to, to a situation like the occupation when, when there are very clear statutes that are written into law to deal with the specifics of occupation. Um, Couple of quick final things, and then I'm going to bring it to the end. And I can see that there's quite a lot of questions already. Which is that I think there's two other things which are um, which are relevant. And I guess if you zoom out, kind of as I have just done with the international law piece, I think for the region as a whole, I think we're in a situation now where ongoing, and we've seen, I say this in the context of the Abraham Accords, so Israel having signed normalization agreements with part of the Arab world, um, but Israel's closer neighbors, where where it's kind of been in, you know, people, countries, sorry, where Israel has had a direct conflict with, and I'm thinking specifically actually of Jordan, that um, Israel's ability to be part of a neighborhood and for that neighborhood to be stable, is undermined by an ongoing occupation. And so, you know, I, I, I don't believe that Israel is to blame for the instability in the Middle East. I think that's a, an incorrect analysis. But what I do think is that for a country like Jordan, which neighbors Israel, Jordan's ability to be a stable, um, uh, you know, a stable neighbor in the region and, and an ally is really undermined by an occupation because its ability to, to kind of, um, I, I don't know, I, I can't think of another way of saying this, but its ability to face its own citizens and say that we are we are we we credibly care about human rights and we credibly care about your literal brothers and sisters because so so many Jordanians are of Palestinian heritage. Um, I think is it, it's very difficult for Jordan to do that. And I think it's very destabilizing politically. And I think that I think that from a kind of broader international perspective, that's quite a worrying position long term. I think that, you know, that there is a lot of discussion about the um, what the region could look like if there was ever peace between Israel and Palestine and the three way relationship that could exist between Jordan, Palestine and Israel and what that could do to the broader region as a whole. And I think that. The longer the occupation goes on, the harder it is to ever achieve that. And actually, the more damaging it becomes that we can't. Um, and one final thing I would say, which is very um, UK focused and uh, kind of very much does not necessarily impact on the region itself, is I think that there is a great deal of damage that the conflict is actually doing to uh, race relations outside of Israel. 
and Palestine. And, I, and by that, I mean, I think that, that the, the conflict has made it hard for, for Jews and Muslims to work together outside of the region and in this country. And it has, and it has made it difficult to build uh, robust interfaith relationships. And that doesn't mean that they don't exist because they do. And I can't claim to be a, a, an expert on them because it's not something I'm involved in day to day. But it is certainly the case that both Muslim and Jewish communities in this country feel much less safe when conflict erupts in the region. And, and there was a huge uptick in violence um, in, in, in this country towards and, and, and anti-Semitic and, and Islamophobic attacks in this country in the last round of violence in May. And it makes it very difficult for, for the two communities to, to sometimes engage with each other. And I think that there is a very, um, and I guess this is quite a uh, self-centered interest, but there is that, that, that I think that there is an imperative for communities that are trying to coexist outside the region um, for this conflict and, and for the occupation to end for the benefit of um, positive faith relationships outside and in other countries where the conflict comes between different parties. And so Whilst obviously, and, I, and I'll end now, but I would just say that I, everything I've said is in the context of it's quite clear that I think that the primary, um, the primary motivator for why people should be invested in trying to bring this occupation to an end is is because of the impact it has on Palestinians. I, you know, and I and I I, I want to kind of restress that because I think kind of listing all these other reasons why there is a kind of imperative to end occupation sometimes kind of sounds like. You've forgotten that the people that are the primary victims here are Palestinians and themselves. And I think that it's important to restate that, 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 that the occupation, the impact of the occupation is obviously felt most strongly by those that are being occupied and by Palestinian people. And, you know, and I think that um, the, the need for, for, for there to be a Palestinian state is, 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 is huge. But our position as an organisation is that they can that in order to even be in a position to imagine a Palestinian state existing, the first thing that has got to happen is that the occupation has got to end. That that actually you cannot have two such unequal partners sitting at the table trying to negotiate a peace. That that we're in a situation today where there is one party that has so much more power than the other party, and the way and. and, and and the idea that from that massive imbalance, you can somehow negotiate a, a meaningful and long lasting peace, I think is really problematic. And actually, there has got to be some equalizing of that relationship between Israelis and Palestinians before you can even dream of there being an actual kind of broader resolution to this conflict. And so I think that, you know, from a kind of, uh, you know, if we kind of are going to look a bit more long term, ending the occupation is one step. And I think once you go beyond that, there is a broader discussion, which is possibly not for today, which is about what does it mean to have a meaningful peace between, between the Israelis and Palestinians, which I think goes beyond ending the occupation. Um, I'm going to stop. So, Diana, I don't know if you want to field questions to me or how you want to do it. <laughs> Hello, I'm back. Um, yes, we've had a lot of questions already, and I'm sure more will come in as we, um, as we do our little Q&A. Um, I'm going to start with, um, there's been a couple of questions, so rather than asking individual ones, I wanted to um, ask you about the IHRA uh, definition and um, versus the JDA definition, I suppose, yeah. and uh, where does Yahad 
stand on on those definitions? So we have not. Um, our, what we have done with JDA is is spend quite a lot of time discussing it, talking about it, speaking to some of the people that have written it, um, and we haven't we haven't got a kind of formal position on it. I think about three years ago, we we publicly stated our support for the Labour Party adopting the IRA definition on the basis that it needed to move, show the Jewish community that it was serious about um, dealing with anti-Semitism and then move beyond the discussion on anti-Semitism. And so that's been our engagement to date. I mean, I think that the, the issue with both IRA and the JDA and definitions of anti-Semitism is that an awful lot of time has now gone into tying everybody in knots over what is the best way to define anti-Semitism. And what I think is very problematic is this notion that it's a zero-sum game, which is either you support the right of Palestinians to, um, to, to, to self-define as to what they see as, as anti-Palestinian racism, or you're against anti-Semitism, but but you can't you can't be both. And I think that I think that where this discussion on definitions has gone is is to a space that basically says whose side are you on here? Are you on the side of the Palestinians or are you on the side of the Jews? And it's actually kind of um, turned what has been a Palestinian-Israeli conflict into a kind of Palestinian-Jewish conflict, which I think is really actually quite unhelpful and and unpleasant. And so. What we're trying to do is kind of move beyond the discussion on definitions almost, because I think that they've they've soured what is an important discussion about, you know, how, how we end this, how we end the occupation, how we end the conflict. Um, we certainly don't see, and I can see there's a comment here um, about this, we certainly don't um, believe that everybody who supports BDS is an anti-Semite. And actually, I, I don't think actually I don't know that that's what the R definition says at all about BDS anyway. But um, but this notion that that there are certain uh, means of resisting the occupation, which are as you know, the method of boycott, divestment, sanction, and sanctions is not anti-Semitic. You know, and so so this idea that there are ways in which you can um, be express your dislike of the occupation which by default make you an anti-semite is not something that we buy into at all. Thank you so, so much for clarifying that a little bit. Um, I should just say that we have a fellowship program that we're very proud of and um, next year we're hoping to sponsor 20 fellows, the most fellows that we've ever sponsored before. But our fellows this year who are absolutely amazing have been working on their projects in small groups and um, you can find that on the website. I'll pop the link in in a moment. And one of the group projects was about the IHRA definition. So if you're interested in uh, reading that, like I said, I'll pop the, the link in the chat box. It's on our website under fellows. And um, we've actually opened up um, as of today, the call for fellowship applications. Um, so if you are a student, a postgrad student or one going into your final year of your undergrad, if you have any links with any universities or anyone that might be interested in, please do um, share share that page with with anyone that you know that might be interested in. Um, I did some little bit of math. I've been posting the chat um, our funding our donation link in the chat box uh, because these webinars are free. But we greatly appreciate a bit of support if you can. I worked out that if everyone um, in who's attending and who popped in today, if everyone gave the price of a coffee, uh, then we would be able to sponsor one of our fellows for a whole year. So um, if you can do, we'd really appreciate that. I've also popped in the link to um, our regular giving page because that greatly helps us decrease admin and helps us plan for our future a little bit more. So um, please do consider doing that. We'd greatly appreciate it. 
Um, right, so we've got, sorry, the questions are coming in thick and fast. What, um, what, so from Peter Blackwood, what resistance has Hannah experienced to the proposition of resolving the conflict and ending the occupation? Has she found, um, what has she found to be successful in overcoming that resistance? Um, I presume you're talking about resistance within the Jewish community when you say resistance. So, um, well, so like any, uh, you know, like any community, the, the Jewish community is not remotely homogenous. So we are, you know, I guess I sometimes say to people, Yachad is, is a kind of bit marmite sometimes, which is that people either really like what we do and there are some people that really hate what we do. Um, and then there's a whole load of people. And I, and I think this is actually really important to acknowledge who just don't care. And when I say they just don't care, is that Israel does not inform the every action of every Jew in this country. That, you know, if you look at the, um, and I've seen there's a few questions about this actually, if you look at the, um, the kind of the academic research that's been done on British Jews particularly, and some of this applies to um, an American context, but not all, the, um, the overwhelming majority, I mean, significant majority in the kind of 90% plus of British Jews feel that Israel forms some part of their Jewish identity. And that ranges from a very substantial part to a small part. Um, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that therefore on a day-to-day -day level, they're particularly engaged in what's going on. It's, it's, it's you know, it's a kind of cultural thing. And so, you know, we th there is resistance that we experience from some from some organisations and from some individuals who really believe that we are damaging Israel and really believe that we're damaging the British Jewish community and and would like for us to not talk out in public and definitely would like us to not speak in in public spaces like this that are not in a Jewish communal context. And actually, our response to them and is in the main, first of all, no one has, no, nobody can claim to speak on behalf of any community. I think that's quite clear. And, and that actually, you know, if you're gonna be true about what a community already thinks you've got to represent the multi, you know, the, the kind of multifaceted face of the community. But I think that also the idea that presenting to, to the broader world that every single Jewish supporter of Israel is in support of the actions of the Israeli government actually is extremely unhelpful. That my experience has been that in more hostile places where I go to talk, um, people are really pleased to hear that there is a debate going on inside the Jewish community. I'm really pleased to hear other perspectives and, and this kind of idea that, and I don't think this is um, unique to the Jewish community, but the idea that I think a lot of minority communities have, which is that they should um, not air their dirty linen in public, is, is actually counterproductive. And that in actual fact, it's really important for people to understand. And I saw someone here ask particularly about why is there so much silence in the Jewish community about ending the occupation? There actually isn't, which is the great irony, is that any space you go into within an, in an Anglo-Jewish context, there is a massive debate going on, massive debate. And, and a lot of you probably don't hear that because you're not hearing it inside the community and there is a nervousness to display that outside the community and we don't have a, a Jewish media in this country that's particularly sympathetic to us I mean some of it is a bit more sympathetic so if you were to pick up a piece of you know formal Jewish media you will not see the wide diverse debate that's going on because like every newspaper newspapers have their own kind of political and um, editorial line and they're, they're not particularly supportive of, of kind of our position and so you know, there is resistance, but I would say that there's less than you might think, basically. 
Um, I'm going to ask a question for myself and use my prerogative as the one with all the controls. Um, so as it's really interesting to get an insight of what's going on a bit in the British Jewish community. Um, obviously, I'm an outsider to that community. So what would what how can we reach those people with doubts about the occupation and so forth within the British community? What can we do to sort of forge links with people uh, from within the British Jewish community that we might share? Uh, similar opinions with? Well, so there's obviously organisations, there's us, there's, there's a couple of other organisations like NAMOD and, and others who are kind of working on occupation related stuff. And so there's organisational relationships. But I would say beyond that, I think there's a really important, um, really important thing that, that needs to be acknowledged, which is that there is a fear in the Jewish community that people are don't always have the, the best interests of the community at heart and that, and that there are parts of the debate in this country around conflict which are laced with anti-Semitism. And I think that one of the things that is really important is, is, is for Jews to feel confident that their partners, you know, and I, when I say their partners, their non-Jewish partners who, who with them have a vested interest in bringing this conflict and the occupation in particular to an end, also share the interests of Jews. And I, you know, I guess to go back to the kind of, question about IRA, this idea that you're, you you either, um, that it's become a zero sum game between Palestinian rights and Jewish rights, that, that you know, I, I guess to be able to kind of persuade people that that's not how it's seen from another perspective, I think is really important as an act of solidarity, because I just think that there is such a nervousness about people kind of choosing the wrong bedfellows, I think is the best way I can put it. And this idea that, there are people who share a common interest in in kind of wanting to see you know to basically end human rights abuses and and then they discover that actually when it comes to you know caring about the future of the jewish community or, or, or anti-semitism that the, the people that they thought they were their partners were not and so i think that that's a really important thing as an act of solidarity to, to kind of remove the the fear that i think exists often with kind of moving the debate kind of beyond the internal kind of, um, I guess, the uh, internal kind of walls that exist. And I would just add to that that one of the reasons that we established Yachad 10 years ago was because there was no, that, because we knew that people did not feel safe in non-Jewish spaces talking about this. And we wanted to create a space that people knew, um, where people felt comfortable, basically, to have some of these conversations and, and felt comfortable and had, had the confidence to talk about it. So one of the reasons that we you know, some people find this slightly controversial, but we, you know, in non-COVID times, and I hope we will be able to do this again soon, although the regulations are not looking very hopeful at the moment, we take delegations of students, of, of grown-ups, whatever you want to call them, out to the region, and we're quite strict about the fact that they are Jewish-only delegations, and the reason that we're quite strict about that is because some of this stuff is very confronting. You know, and it's very confronting to spend four days in the West Bank and have, and to kind of see what's going on on the ground. And it's really important that people can kind of deal with that emotionally and in an honest way. And I think sometimes it's difficult for people to do that um, when they don't feel 100% safe or they're not 100% sure who that, you know, who they're having the conversation with, which is why when we take, you know, one of our biggest delegations that we take is a student delegation and, you know, we, we, when non-Jewish students ask if they can come, our position is basically it's open to Jewish students because it's about how do we change the debate inside the Jewish community. And we're aware that sometimes it's quite hard to do that when people feel exposed. 
Well, um, on that note, we've got a question from Martin Linton, who with um, Sarah Apps's wife, they run Travel to Palestine, which is another group that does delegations um, open to all. So if you are interested and you're Jewish, you can contact Hannah, and if not, Martin Linton. Um, but there <laughs> are ways to, anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are ways to get out there and be taken around and see for yourself uh, what's going on out there on the ground. But Martin Linton asks, um, to what extent does Yahad see itself as having a role as an alternative to the Board of Deputies in terms of expressing a British Jewish view on the occupation? Good question. Um, so for those of you who don't know, the Board of Deputies of British Jews is the British Jewish community's kind of most established, um, I think it's its oldest, 250 years plus old, Jewish, mainstream Jewish community organization. And really briefly, and I don't want to bore you with this, but it's kind of worth knowing this. It basically has representatives from, from all synagogues and from communal organisations that, that send deputies to the Board of Deputies. And the deputies then vote honorary officers who get to kind of then be the elected, demo, democratically elected representatives of the Jewish community. It's quite an antiquated body. It's not kind of, I wouldn't say it kind of necessarily particularly reflects the demography of the Jewish community. It tends to attract an older generation. And someone asked here if there's a generational thing inside the Jewish community, and there definitely is. Um, and, and so we have a deputy. So we send a deputy to the Board of Deputies and we fought a very hard battle, and I think about five, six years ago now, to get elected. And, and it was really quite hard work because there were people that were really lobbying half us to not be kind of let in. And the reason for that is because once you have a seat at the Board of Deputies, you are part of the fabric of Anglo-Jewish life. And as much as people can dislike you and say that they don't think that we're representative, it's much harder to make that case when we've been um, when we have a deputy sitting at the table. So some people take real issue, and parts of the Jewish community, I guess, to our left, take real issue with the fact that we have a deputy at the board of deputies because they turn around and say the board of deputies doesn't represent the, our opinions, and therefore why are we sitting with a deputy that is now being you know, and someone is speaking on the behalf on behalf of your deputy and saying things that you disagree with in relation to Israel and the occupation. Um, and our position is basically, you know, we, we absolutely, to answer Martin's question, we absolutely see ourselves as providing an alternative position. And, you know, and when things happen in the region, for those of you who follow this debate closely, you'll see that the Board of Deputies will say something and will say something completely different. And that happens on a, on a very regular basis. I would say that that's kind of the normative way in which we kind of coexist with them. But our position is basically that we see ourselves as an organization that is part of the mainstream of the Anglo-Jewish community. This is not a fringe opinion, that the opinions of Yahad are not fringe, they are mainstream and our supporters are mainstream and they're engaged in mainstream Jewish life. So our donors and our supporters, our younger, men, our younger supporters, they're active on their Jewish societies on campus, in their Jewish youth groups, our older supporters and our donors are members of synagogues, they donate to other mainstream Jewish community organizations. This is not a fringe position. And therefore we need to be within those organizations, making sure that those organizations are held to account. And so we're acutely aware, you know, Yafat is never going to be, uh, I guess to be really clear, um, the BBC is never going to call up Yachad and say, we'd rather have your opinion than the Board of Deputies' opinion on what's going on in Israel. They might call us up in addition to the Board of Deputies, which is what they do sometimes, but we've got to be realistic about the fact that these communal organisations exist as representative bodies, and therefore, if we want them to represent the opinions of our supporters, we need to have a seat at the table. And the only way that we will change 
the narrative and the only way we'll get to a point where you know some of you have asked well why don't we hear those voices it's because for so long progressive voices looked at, at kind of um Jewish community organizations and said you don't represent me I don't want to have anything to do with it and so you and you get into what is a basically a vicious cycle which is that people withdraw because they feel unrepresented and those organizations become even more unrepresentative than they were and people then don't want to have anything to do with them and and so we have a full-time uh director of community engagement and her whole role is about how do we get our supporters to get more actively involved in the Board of Deputies and other community organisations to, to, to kind of make, make sure that our voice is heard and, and that actually not drowned out by other voices. Thanks for that. Um, we have a comment from Gillian Mosley. We um, showed her film recently, Tinderbox, yes. and had a Q&A with her. Um, so we're really glad that you are joining us, Gillian. But she says, Hannah, all beautifully expressed, thank you. Um, she is Jewish, Gillian Mosley, so she says, what can Jews in Britain who largely live outside the community do? Well, I, I mean, I, I guess that question applies to anyone, really, which is that if you're not engaged in communal Jewish life and you don't, and that doesn't, that's not the framework through which you want to engage, specifically on this issue, um, then I guess, I, I, I guess that's, I, I mean, I guess that I'm not necessarily qualified to answer that question, only because the focus of our work is on how do we engage Jews in the Jewish communal context. And so there's obviously a whole plethora of organisations that exist in this country that are dealing with, um, dealing with, um, with, Israel-Palestine and I guess it's you know whether it's the Balfour project whether it's travels to Palestine whether it's you know we share you know Carbu, we share lots of kind of partners and organizations that we all work with um I feel that I feel that there's quite a wide spectrum of kind of of kind of um opportunities there the one thing I would say though is that I really think it's important for the British government to hear from um actually from unlikely voices. One of the things that the Foreign Office, well, the, it's not called the Foreign Office anymore, but the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO, say to us, is that you can't underestimate the impact that it has from when we receive correspondence from unlikely places. So from engaged members of the Anglo-Jewish community who are part of the mainstream, who are talking about something going on in Israel and uh, that's nuanced. And likewise, on the other side, that, that there is that, that it's very easy to dismiss the obvious voices because, of course, they're going to say that. So, of course, members of Palestine Solidarity are going to say this, and of course, Jewish people are going to say this. But you know, and therefore, that's a load of noise that we can ignore because we've kind of come to expect that, and you know, we always get that in our post bag. And so, how is how do we ensure? that there are unlikely things being said by unlikely people. And I think that that's, I guess, what we're trying to do in a Jewish context. But I think that that challenge applies in a non-Jewish context too, basically, you know, from the other perspective. Thanks. Um, we've got, our next question is from Wayne David. I don't know how common a name that is, but I suspect that's Wayne David MP. So thank you for joining us. Um, there are signs that the new Israeli government is taking modest steps to ease the relationship with both the West Bank and Gaza. How significant is this? Um, so the jury is really out on the new Israeli government. I mean, it's quite clear that that uh, this government is not going to be the government that ends the occupation. And uh, you know, and, and actually, Natalie Bennett, who's the prime minister, is actually, and you might, some of you might kind of 
uh, balk at me saying this, but in comparison, Bibi Netanyahu, in comparison to Natalie Bennett, was actually quite moderate. Bibi Netanyahu was actually a status quo person, so he never really wanted to do anything. Didn't really want to. Didn't really want to annex the West Bank, but he didn't want to give it up. He didn't really. He was quite happy to find a way, basically, to maintain the status quo and maintain his power. And in the end, he failed at maintaining his power, but he did it for twelve very long years. Um, Natalie Bennett, on the other hand, is really ideological. Natalie Bennett is an ideological settler. So, I mean, you know, he's not running down hilltops, you know, burning down Palestinian olive groves and kind of he's not a violent settler, but he's ideological and he believes that Israel has a right to have control and dominion over the West Bank. And so in that respect, he's actually much more extreme. I think the thing that is really different, though, about this government is that there's a massive moderating force that never existed. So you do have in the government... First of all, the, 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 the kind of Jewish left, so you've got Labour and Meretz, both of which are, you know, affiliated internationally to the Labour Party here, and you also have an Arab party, um, the United Arab List, and it's the first time in Israel's history there's been an Arab party in the government. And so you're all of a sudden in a situation where however ideological Natali Bennett is, there's limitations on his power that Netanyahu never had. And so, you know, I guess to answer Wayne's question specifically, I, I don't think it's insignificant that attempts are being made to, 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 to rebuild relationships. I think, I think that that's really important in terms of like a very low level, at least we can have a functioning dialogue, you know, you know with the Palestinian Authority, um, because, it, because it sets a precedent for behavior and also sets a precedent for future kind of serious discussions. Um, are they gonna make, a massive difference I think it's probably unlikely I think you know it's like when I say a massive difference I mean are they going to make a kind of substantive political difference I think probably not I think can they potentially ease some of the worst worst bits of the blockade of Gaza and the occupation I think that they will I, th I think I think that from a kind of pure quality of life point of view things will probably ease under this government you know in a way that they didn't before but it's not going to bring about any significant political change. So the jury's still out, but we shouldn't be too hopeful, is what I'm I, Yeah, but I think basically don't be too hopeful, but I wouldn't also be too hopeless. Like I, th I think I think that basically the only way, the only way out of Netanyahu was this government. There wasn't another way. We weren't going to go from Netanyahu to a to a a, a kind of left progressive coalition that was just never going to happen and I, I you know and I think that I think that therefore we've got to view this kind of as a long game that this is a stepping stone and I and I would just add that what I think is crucially important and, and I guess relevant to Wayne kind of as the shadow Middle East minister you know in the Labour Party is that the progressive camp in Israel the you know has political power now it hasn't had political power for a really really long time and it has hugely undermined the confidence of the Israeli electorate in the Labour Party Avodah and in Meretz which is kind of um to the left of Labour hugely undermined people's confidence in their ability to govern and the fact that they now have a seat at at the table is massive in terms of psychologically what that does to their ability to kind of imagine that they could be in power with much more power one day, you know, and, and Israel was governed by a Labour by a Labour government until 1977. So, and Labour very nearly disappeared completely as a, as, as a political party in the last election. 
um, and it has had a resurgence with the new leader. But I think that that is a positive thing. And I think it's something which we've got to kind of bear in mind for kind of the future election that that they're now back in the game, basically. Thanks for that. Um, we've got a question from Christopher Hicks. What tangible parliamentary support is there for your important work, Hannah, I suppose, in the UK Parliament? Um, is the support growing? Um, no, it's be a good question to ask Wayne, I guess. But um, I think there is support. We have really good relationships with lots of MPs, um, more in the Labour Party um, than the Conservative Party. But but we are we, we are kind of I mean, we haven't been for the last few months because of recess, but we are kind of on a regular basis meeting with and talking to MPs. And, and you know, my feeling is that we we play quite a unique role. There's obviously lots of players that are kind of inside Parliament talking about Israel Palestine. We're not the only NGO that is kind of trying to kind of like, you know, talk to people about this and, and get them to do something. But I think that I think we have a unique role to play in that I think that people are nervous about talking about this issue. They're nervous about saying things. And I think that we provide a perspective which is quite helpful for MPs sometimes, which is giving MPs the confidence um, to articulate what they think, helping MPs who are kind of sometimes struggling with how best to articulate something in a way that they want it to come across so it's not misconstrued. And I think that increasingly we are finding that MPs will come to us and actually ask, ask for our help. Literally, you know, say a constituent has said this to me, what do you think about my reply? Or I want to word a question, can you help me? Or do you think that this response is okay? And, you know, and I think that, in that in that regard, we, we are seen to be quite a helpful, um, you know, we, we, we can be quite helpful partners, basically, for parliamentarians. And I would say, if anything, we, we, we're kind of still, there's, there's a significant ground that we can still cover. And I think that, you know, you know, I hope that one day we'll be able to increase our capacity to be able to do more of it because we are limited in our reach because we are, you know, we're a small organisation. Thank you. Hannah, we're trying to plow through as many questions as possible, but I have to say we've had hundreds come in, literally, so um, we will not get through all of them. I'm really sorry about that, but um, I'm going to quickly push on so that we can try to get a, more, a couple more in. Um, from Wally Yazbek, um, I guess in order to move forward, must the UK admit their grave error and apologize to the Palestinian people for all their all the wrongs they caused to Palestine and their human rights? I, I mean, if I'm really honest, I just don't think that's ever going to happen. And therefore, I think it's um, I think it's wrong to. I, I think I think I think that there can be. I don't think I don't think the UK is that important. Basically, is the truth. I, and I know. And now I sound like I'm going to undermine everything that we're doing. But I think the UK is a cog in it, you know, and there are lots of cogs turning in this. And it doesn't mean that therefore we're inconsequential because we're not, but we are a smaller cog in the wheel. And it's quite clear that, you know, the, the major cog is the Americans and parts of the Arab world. And, and then I would say, you know, the EU and then Britain. Um, I don't think that Britain suddenly turning around and saying we bear some responsibility for this is a, I don't think it's going to happen, and I B, don't think that actually makes any difference. That what tangibly needs to happen to kind of actually now shift the dial, and so I, I, I don't think it does ride on that. To be honest, sorry, that's not a very comprehensive answer, but that's great. Thank you. Um, I'm going to batch two questions because I think they follow on quite nicely. Yes. So, from Judith Greengrass, could a sea of change 
of perspectives be gained by impressing on both Palestinians and the international community um, by coaxing, encouraging a far more coherent, less corrupt political approach by the Palestinians themselves. Um, so I guess pressure on the Palestinian government, parliament um, members. And Sally and Bernard, Bernard Davies, um, which Palestinians um, that the Palestinians themselves have confidence in could the Israelis negotiate with to end this occupation? Right. So I think I, I mean I think there's a lot of um, truth in that first question. I think that often the way this conflict is presented is that if only Israel did X, Y would happen. And I don't think it's that it's formulaic, and I don't think it's that black and white. I think that there is a real dearth of leadership on the Palestinian side. There's clearly a massive lack of trust in the Palestinian leadership and this sense that it's a kind of um, undemocratic, quite corrupt um, system of rule. And that there's this kind of symbiotic relationship between the Palestinian Authority and Israel in kind of maintaining the status quo. And so I think it's absolutely the case that a that a, um, a democratization of Palestinian leadership would make a huge difference in terms of the ability of the Palestinian people to kind of, um, uh, I guess, um, present themselves in a different way to Israel and the international community. And I say there are obviously massive limitations on that because there is a huge power imbalance, but I think it's, I think it's that it's um, naive to pretend that all of this falls on on, on Israel. That, that there's got to be that that I, I think there's got to be a change on the Palestinian side in terms of its leadership because I don't think that there will be any progress otherwise. And I also think the other thing that we haven't talked about is is the split in the Palestinian leadership. That that this kind of, you know, which has been since two thousand and six now, really. But this kind of um, split in rule between Hamas and Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank um, is really problematic in terms of, of of there being any way to kind of negotiate with a unified voice. And I think that everybody basically, I, if I'm being very cynical, I would say that. All three parties, Israel, Hamas, and the Palestinian Authority, all have a, an interest in maintaining that split. It's to everyone's collective benefit. And, uh, you know, the fact that the Palestinian elections that were supposed to happen this year were cancelled is really depressing because it just maintains the status quo that you can never move beyond. And actually, it becomes really easy for Israel to turn around and say, well, there's no one to talk to. This leadership is split, and I, you know, I think that Israel bears some responsibility for significant responsibility in maintaining that split, but it's not solely responsible for it. And you know, and I think that um, it's very hard to kind of argue that there is a credible partner um, to talk to because who are the leaders? And not, and I say a credible partner. I don't, I don't say that because I think that Palestinians aren't serious about peace because I think that most of them are. But I mean, a credible political unified voice, basically. Thank you, Hannah. Um, just a, a little compliment to you from Isolde Moylan. Brilliant analysis, Hannah. She asked a question that I think you've answered already, but I just thought uh, you could do with a little praise. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we've got a question from. Um, Michael Doe, who's on our executive committee yes. of the project, if the settlers are not following a religious ideology, the promises to Abraham, etc., how do they express their moral justification for what they're doing? Well, I get to clarify, I mean, that some of them are, some of them are genuinely, you know, they read the Bible and they say, we bought this piece of land, it belongs to us, we, they, we, we, have, we have ancient historical rights over it. So some of them, they really are. I, th I think that 
I think for ideological settlers who are not who are not religious or you know driven by kind of that religious kind of sentiment, I think it's a um, sometimes it's based on, on on a kind of a theory of war, which is well actually Israel's under threat and we captured this we we won this territory in a war and therefore it belongs to us and you often hear. Um, this kind of idea of there's no other group of people that still get to call themselves refugees 70 plus years after the war. So, and people, you know, and you will hear people say, you know, Jews were displaced in the Second World War, which they obviously were in their millions, but we don't claim any longer to be refugees from Eastern Europe, for example. And so why is it that when this war, this war has been fought and won, um, you still claim to have, you know, you still, as a Palestinian, claim rights to it. And so, you know, and, and, and blame is often put on, on surrounding Arab countries for not integrating Palestinian refugees properly, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, but I, and so I think that from a moral justification point of view, it, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, I, th I guess if you see it as a zero sum game, it's morally justified. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm just kind of, putting myself in someone else's shoes here because I obviously don't think it's morally justified but I think if you believe that and I have heard I have heard settlers who are not religious say this and the person that I'm thinking of is Danny Diane who used to be the spokesperson for the Yeshe Council which is the settler movement um, and Danny's justification and, and go back and watch it because I don't want to misquote him but he I appeared on a um on a TV show, I think it's called Hard Talk, which was an Al Jazeera program that Mehdi Hassan used to used to um, host, probably about six or seven years ago. And Danny's position was, I that it's this this is a zero sum game, and he was non-religious and ideological. This is a zero sum game, and basically, I understand that Palestinians believe this land all belongs to them. And I, as a Jew, believe it all belongs to me. And therefore, because it's zero sum, one of us has got to, in a zero sum game, someone's a loser and someone's a winner. And I want to be the winner, basically. I mean, I'm being a bit, I'm just, I'm kind of simplifying this and being a bit crass and kind of how I'm explaining this. But I think that there is a group of people who see it like that, that, that this is a war, basically. And there's winners and losers in war. And we'd rather be the winners than the losers. Um, whether or not, I, you know, I don't know that. I, I think that the most extreme settlers, it's 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 religion rather than than anything else. And how you square a religious belief with with violence against Palestinians, I really, I I I don't know because when I I find it really problematic that I go to somewhere like Hebron, which I think is the most extreme place you can go in terms of seeing the occupation, and there's ultra orthodox Jews who, in my name, to protect Jewish interests, are doing what they're doing to Palestinians in Hebron. And I, and I do not understand which Jewish values they are applying to that decision, because they're certainly not mine. Thanks so much for that. Um, Ron Mendel, I hope that answers your question as well about that conflict between um, your Judaism and religious belief and the moral justifications for some of the actions that take place. Um, I am going to just quickly tell you all about a talk that we've got coming up. We don't have a date confirmed, but we do have the speaker confirmed. Um, Jonathan uh, Katab, who is the co-founder of the Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq, and he is a well-known well international human rights lawyer. So we're really, really excited about having him um, come and speak to us. 
And um, he is now the director of the Friends of Sabil in North America and serves on the board of the Bethlehem Bible College and is president of the board of the Holy Land Trust. So that talk will be really, really incredibly interesting, I think. Um, if you haven't already, sign up to our mailing list. Um, I will pop the link in now so that you can make sure that you are one of the first to hear about the dates and all of our future events. And um, as I said before, <laughs> we are very keen to raise as many funds as possible so that we can continue with the this online lecture program, with our online conferences, hopefully in the future our in-person events, and um, as well as our fellowship program, which is a very dear program of ours. I po posted a link in the chat box as well to that. So please do check out our current fellows who are absolutely amazing, their projects, as well as our call for fellows for next year. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think if everyone who's here gave the cost of a coffee, we would be able to support and sponsor one of those fellows for an entire year. And those fellows, they, um, they help us raise awareness about the work that we're doing in their campus and, and and further so it's it's a really lovely program do check it out um i am going to pop the donation links in the chat box uh one final time um not to seem too desperate but they will be going in again and i'm going to end on a question from uh vincent Fien. so vincent who is our um who's the chair of the balfour project and um he asks how do you evaluate the approach of Biden Blinken and does Johnson have an approach at all? Thanks for that, Vincent. Um, hi, Vincent. I, I think Biden does not want to engage in this at all, basically. I mean, we kind of knew that before he, yeah, every, there was this massive sigh of relief that Trump didn't get in for a whole load, whole load of reasons, not, not just this, but on this front, because tr I think Trump's position was to kind of just lob grenades. It felt like he was kind of, an arsonist basically at any available opportunity he kind of thrown a grenade into the mix and kind of see what what it did and so I think that I kind of I, I just a kind of removing that I think is a is a good thing um you know my sense is and this is what our American partner said to us from the minute that Biden was kind of on the ticket is he won't do anything he might reverse some of the worst elements of what Trump did or he won't further them at least but he, this is not going to be his foreign policy issue. And, you know, and I mean, as we have seen, he's got a pretty other, you know, major foreign policy issue on his hands right now. I can't imagine he wants to have anything to do really with what's going on there. So, you know, I, my sense is that, that, that the Blinken-Biden partnership is a, a kind of a status quo one, which is that let's just make sure nothing terrible happens, but we're not going to, we're not going to kind of burn political capital on trying to make anything good happen because it probably won't. You know, and, and I think that, you know, he was obviously around when Kerry, you know, spent a huge amount of political capital on, on a, a shuttle diplomacy that failed. And I think that he probably looks at it and kind of just sees a thing that it will suck the administration's time. And so um, I don't think you'll get very much from them. I mean, I, I hope that at the least you will get, you know, that you will get the pressure that stops the very worst things from happening. And so, you know, that keeps the possibility of conflict resolution on life support, but I don't think it will take it off life support and advance it, basically. And, and as for Johnson, I, I mean, it's very difficult to tell, like our engagement with the government, and it's kind of a, not at a prime ministerial level, but we do engage with, with the government, is that, is that, that they equally are not 
and do not have much of a strategy, that their position is to support two-state solution, to believe that the occupation is illegal, to, to believe that settlements are a barrier to peace, but they will never do anything substantial unless it's really under threat. And so the only time you've seen an intervention from Johnson is, is kind of on the eve of the date where Israel said it would annex the West Bank, formally annex the West Bank. And Johnson wrote a front page op-ed in a major Jewish, sorry, in a major Israeli um, newspaper. And, and that was important because I think it showed the Israeli public that the West and their allies were not going to just kind of take it lying down. But it had to get that bad for Boris Johnson to write that op-ed. It had to be the brink of a complete disaster, basically. Whereas you've got a constant disaster that's just quietly kind of going on. And so, you know, the, the, my sense is that if unless there's really significant noise from the backbench Tory party, that there's not really any pressure on the government to engage with this issue in a serious way. And so they'll keep on issuing um, press releases that probably all of us who are in this game could write for them because we know what they say. And it's the same press release kind of on repeat. And so, I, you know, I, my sense is that there isn't much of a strategy. Thank you. Um, well, that's us come to time now. Thank you so much for joining us, Hannah. It was really, really interesting hearing what you had to say. Thank you everyone for coming along. We've had such an amazing attendance. Uh, the recording will go on the website as per usual. So please do, if you wanna catch up, share this talk, then um, please do find it on our past events section along with all the other recordings. And um, so it leaves, to me to say goodbye really thank you so much hannah Thanks thank you everyone me everybody well we'll we will be soon posting the date um for our upcoming talk and um we hope to continue to have amazing speakers and we will hope to see you all at the next one thank you so much everyone bye from us bye, bye.